Well, you know, I think all of us want to have a beautiful day. We want to have that sense of wow when we approach life, and often life can grind that kind of joy out of you. So how do we recapture the joy of the windfall? Well, to do that today, last chance if you want to join us, you can text HCHURCH300 to 22333 to join in our account and story today. We're going to be looking at five words I need your help with to uh, fill into the story. So our first word, you can text right in if you're in the docket, is an unusual first name. This could be somebody you went to high school with or college with, could be a fictional uh, name from a story you like or a movie you like, but pick an unusual first name and text that in and those will start popping up. And again, that could be, you know, Harold, that could be uh, Medusa, you pick whatever it is. And while that's buffering here, um, anyone in this section want to yell out one of your favorites you've come up with so far? Elmo. Elmo. All right, Elmo. Haven't heard, okay, Elmo, there's one right there. Elmo. All right. Any other unusual names from the section over here? We heard Harold a little bit earlier. Uh, that hurts if you're a Harold. Uh, anyone else got one over here? Cinnamon. Cinnamon. All right, Cinnamon. An unusual first name. We got Elmo. We got Cinnamon. All right, anyone else? Bono. Bono, that is an unusual name. All right, well, I'm going to assume our buffering has not... Oh, here they come. All right, what do we got? We got Javon, we got Dion, we got Zelda, Reddick, Nemo. Wow, all kinds of good, interesting... Oswald, Ramsey, Reddick. I'm... Chad, now that hurts. That hurts. I just want you to know... That just gets me right here. Wow, that really hurts. All right. Uh, we're going to go with uh, Mortimer. Mortimer as our unusual name. Mortimer. And we'll move to our second category and we'll find out how mean-spirited this uh, community and family is together. Uh, give me an adjective to describe a person. Could be a good adjective. Could be a bad adjective. It could be an unusual could be limaceous, which means slimy. You pick whatever adjective you think would be unique for our story today. So let's see what we got. We got some kind, some crazy, some stinky, some goofy, some rambunctious. I don't think I can spell that, but that's a good one. Rambunctious. Smart. We slimy made it in there. Good jobs. More stinky, melancholy, funky, lazy, sexy. Man, all kinds of good answers. Stupendous. We're going to go stupendous. That is stupendous. Awesome. Stupendous. All right, three more to go. So we're going to delete all the ones out of the bin there, switch to our next category, which is a fictional villain. This could be from a favorite uh, movie, sh favorite TV show. This could be from a book you read. This could be a teacher from high school. You know, whatever it is, I guess that would be fictitious. Uh, but pick someone who's a fictitious villain that you'd like to be in our story. All right, we got Voldemort. We got the Thanos, Joker. We got uh, Lex Luthor. All kinds of good ones here. We got the Hulk. Uh-huh. Megamind. Good one on Megamind. Joker's got quite a few. A lot of people must have seen the Batman. I've seen the last scene from the Batman here because the Joker made it up there. All right. So we got the Joker. Cruella. Pretty good. Let's see. We're going to lock in on... We'll go with the Joker. It's nice and big. We'll go with the Joker. Fictional villain is the Joker. All right. We got two more to go. And again, the, uh, the account we're going to tell is actually the account from history of a real story. We're just going to be swapping out a few of the blanks. All right, last two. Can you give me a strange place? A strange place. 
go ahead. Somebody's got to put Horizon up there. Just to, I'm at church and we're playing Mad Libs. Uh, Horizon, a strange place. What is a strange place? Could be a cave. Could be, again, a, a fictional place. It could be a real place. Maybe a favorite vacation spot. There's Horizon. There it is. Hogwarts, bud. All right, Hogwarts. Horizon and Hogwarts we have up there so far while we're like in. So while we're waiting for a few to buffer, any from this section you want to add to the mix? Transylvania, that's a good one. Say it again. Dungeon, a dungeon, Transylvania, a little, little overlap there. All right. Any other ones? All right, let's see if we can lock in our votes up on the screen. We'll go ahead and go with Transylvania. Transylvania, trans, oh my goodness, Transylvania, okay, there it is, Transylvania. All right, last one, a type of animal, type of animal. I'll give you a little hint, this is actually going to occur in an expression, so it's an a animal you might use in expression, but just any kind of animal, an unusual animal that we might want to include, we have elephants and sloths and monkeys and hedgehogs and goldfish and skunks. And elephants, and Bengals, and presents, and walrus, a cockatoo, that's pretty good, a boar, and a sloth. All right, last chance to vote in. We got some, oh, cheetah, pretty good. All right, we're going to go with the sloth. It's nice and big, the sloth. All right, so the account we're going to look at today is a story from history that has lots of twists. And by giving me these uh, fill-ins, you're going to even twist the story further. But here's our story for today. There once was a young man named Mortimer who was very, very stupendous. He had a famous relative named the Joker, <laughs> who was the king's archenemy. The new king called him to Transylvania, ah, 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 where he assumed he'd be punished as a threat. Instead, when he heard the king's generous plan, he cried out gratefully, why would you do this to a dead sloth like me? So thank you for uh, joining in the fun today and giving us some stories because this is almost an exact account of something that happens in history. And in this series, The Tales of the Unexpected, we've been looking at expectations specifically. And have you ever noticed the difference between people who have low expectations and people who have like, whoa, expectations? I mean, there's some people that no matter what happens to them, the glass was half empty. And you try and fill it up and it leaks out and you don't even enjoy encouraging them or affirming them or, or giving to them because no matter what you pour in, it just goes out. There's other people who have high expectations, but they're entitled expectations. And so even when you do meet their expectations, whether it's a boss or a spouse or a child or a parent, there just doesn't seem to be that beautiful day, joy and gratitude. And yet many times folks from our church will go on one of our, our global mission opportunities, go down to inter-parish ministries or city gospel or travel to Belize and they'll say it was amazing because that child opened a gift and it was pencils or crayons and they were like whoa I've never had a gift before whoa all these crayons are for me and they're struck by the gratitude and the joy of whoa expectations of those who are overwhelmed with gratitude by everything that happens. 
You ever come across a difference between low expectations and woe expectations in your life? You're buying gifts for your kids, right? How much joy does it fill you with when you give a child something that they asked for and they're like, is that all? Thanks. I thought it'd be bigger, <laughs> right? Thanks. I thought you'd get the deluxe model, right? It just sucks the joy out of you that their expectations became demands and entitlement. Contrast that to giving a gift where a child, an employee, gets the gift and they're like, man, I am just so grateful. This is above and beyond. I just love it. We got some folks that work here, a lot of people work here, but a couple in particular I'm thinking of, that you ask them to do something else, you challenge them with something, and they say things like this, man, whatever you need, this is just such a sweet gig. I love working here. Man, I, 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 what else can I do? I love the environment here. I love the impact we're having in people's life. What else? Or maybe you've, you've gone to give a bonus or a, a, a salary increase to someone. Same salary increase, two people. One responds with thanks, I earned it, which is true. And somebody else is like, man, I just am so grateful. Doesn't it fill you with gratitude to see them with gratitude? To see this woe expectation of high expectations, but, but they come also without that sense of entitlement. What we're going to discover today in, in the story of a guy named uh, Mephibosheth is that knowing what you deserve leads to what you don't. See, many of us, we lead with our strengths, but if we really looked at our own secrets, our own problems, our own bad motivations, we'd say, if I got everything I deserved, <laughs> if it's my strengths, it'd be pretty good. If it include all my weaknesses or bad moments or secrets, I'm not sure that's real good. And this guy named Mephibosheth, kind of an unusual name, he's going to find something really, really powerful. He's going to discover that when he realizes what he hasn't earned, what his culture isn't going to pay him for, that expectation leads him to a whoa moment that changes his life in the course of history. So I'll take a while and first tell you the story, because it's not a well-traveled story, but it's a pretty amazing one. Jump back in time with me to 1000 B.C., this is an actual place in history. There's artifacts all over the place. And you may say, I'm not sure I believe in the God of the Bible or the accounts in the Bible sound like fanciful stories. I've been to the actual location that several of these places occurred, seen the archaeological evidence for these folks. One is a guy named King Saul. And King Saul, who had a, uh, a building or a castle, for lack of a better term, is sitting in a valley. And the castle is called the Valley of, uh, or the the fortress of Shaharim, the city with two gates. And for years, people said, the Bible is a fanciful story. No one would ever build a castle or a fortress with two gates. That'd be two weak spots. So for years, people questioned the Bible's validity until sure enough, they uncovered the first ever found fortress with two gates, and it had archaeological finds mentioning both Saul and King David. So, I got to stand in this actual place back in 2012. So a guy named King Saul, he wasn't originally king. In fact, he was a very humble man. The Bible says he's handsome. It says he was very talented, but he's very humble. And he gets elevated to the top of the stack. He gets chosen by the leaders in those days to be the next king. And he is humble and he is strong. It's in the middle of a civil war where people disagreeing with each other in his country. He brings the people together and says, let's not make it about you. Let's not make it about them. Let's make it about us. 
Amazingly, a man who didn't come in with expectations he should be king, doesn't have expectations that he, he must be king, is just, whoa, you chose me. And whoa, out of that humility, he's bringing people together. However, a few years later, he's got a, a son named Jonathan, and he's got another daughter named Miguel. Well, they're going up against a battle of a man named Goliath. And everyone is terrified of Goliath. To which, again, you might say, well, there's again why I don't believe in the Bible, Chad. You're talking about giants. Well, um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Underdogs where he shows some of the evidence from the, the Bible's account as to why Goliath probably had a pituitary gland issue, which causes extreme growth. It also caused him, which often happens with pituitary gland issues, um, nystagmus of his eyes. Because when David runs at him with a staff, he says, I see two sticks, which is often common with pituitary glands. You can look up in the Guinness Book of World Records, there's even people 7 foot 11 that have been found even today. And again, the, the average Jewish height was pretty short compared to average, so certainly they were giants. So, again, I actually got to sit in the valley where this thing occurred. I got to reach into the creek and pick up a rock from the very place David did. So David, this young shepherd where he comes in, and where everyone else was scared, he takes the giant out. And again, in Gladwell's book, it mentions that the velocity of the, the slingers, they were called in that day, could sling a rock as hard as a revolver could shoot an actual bullet. Amazing research if you want to look into it. He kills Goliath. And he's offered the chance to marry the king's daughter and be part of the royal family. And he does. And King Saul, who is scared to death to go to war, suddenly is very, very popular. And he likes that. It meets his expectations. As long as David serves him, he likes it. But pretty soon, David's popularity outgrows his popularity. And now he expects everyone to turn their back on David, including his daughter, who married him, and his son, who's best friends with David. And in this world of expectation, it's all about protect yourself. Don't let anyone get into your territory. Push anyone away who's a threat. Make sure that everyone knows who's in charge and who's not. It's a world of expectations. Well, these expectations begin to drive King Saul mad. Because he expects everyone to turn against David, even though he's the one that's filled with jealousy and anger and rage. His daughter doesn't turn against David, helps David escape. David becomes best friends with his son, Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, you're going to be the next king, Saul says. Why are you siding with him and not me? Well, Dad, because you're crazy. He expected him to lean, align with him, expected him to follow him, even if it meant doing wrongdoing. King Saul will chase David for years of his life, hunting him, trying to kill him, because he's a threat to the kingdom. David keeps apologizing I haven't done anything, but whatever you need me to apologize for, I will. He, he, he could have killed him several times. He tries to make reconciliation with him. He won't reconcile. Things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. And now King Saul has lost his relationship with his daughter, his son, his son-in-law. Eventually his disconnection with reality and the universe and his self-awareness. Everything's destroyed because he's got an expectation. You've got to agree with me or you're wrong. In a sad account, he ends his life because he and Jonathan are in battle and they both get hit by arrows and ultimately die. Now at that moment, we're back in the, the royal castle. And in the royal palace, we know what happens when the old king dies. A new king comes in and slaughters everybody. That's what you expect in this culture. You, anything that's a threat is eliminated when the new king comes in place. 
So there's a nurse there, and the nurse knows if Jonathan's dead and King Saul is dead, i got to take this baby boy in my arms that I'm nursing, and i got to get him out of here before he's killed. So this nurse begins to run, and she trips in the haste of trying to save the child's life, drops the child, and breaks both his legs. And now this child will be maimed for life, trying to outrun a world of expectations where people have to be on your side or you're eliminated. She then hides this child, who's related to the royal family, in a nearby village, and his name is Mephibosheth, where he will grow up. Now the new king steps in, and the new king is David. He'd been anointed years earlier, but he refused to take his place He said, no, I am not going to be a king like the previous kings. I am not going to demand and kill and destroy. Until we get to our account today, where the king is sitting at the royal palace, he's taken over the place, he's set up his kingdom, and like everyone's always told him, we expect you then to destroy any other threat. He says, well, I got a question for you. Is there anyone still alive from the household of that guy who hunted me down and wasted so many years of my life, King Saul? The servant, a guy named Ziba, says, yeah, there is a son of Jonathan. He's lame in his feet. And the king said, well, where is he? And everyone reading the story knows what's going to happen. It's what's happened in every culture, in every time, in every place there's ever been a kingdom. New king comes in, you eliminate everybody in the previous administration, like literally <laughs> eliminate them, and then eliminate anyone who's got royal blood. That's what's expected. Ziba goes and finds Mephibosheth. He says, the king needs to see you. And Mephibosheth knows exactly what he deserves according to that culture. He deserves death. Now we in our culture are like, well, that's not fair. That's not right. But in their culture, everyone's known that every civilization you've ever heard of, if you're related to the royal bloodline, regardless of what you've done, you deserve death. And Mephibosheth, who's older now, knows this is his last day on earth. So he's probably carried or dragging his feet because he's lame in both feet. And he makes his way to see King David. As he walks into the room, he can see the executioners and soldiers and generals and royal family all around. David, hearing the door open, turns, looks at him and says, Mephibosheth? And his response is, yeah, here is your servant. I'm not a threat. I'm not out to get your kingdom. Same kind of words you said to to my grandpa are the words I'm saying to you. I've got no axe to grind. I'm here to serve you. But I know what happens. I'm going to die today. As the readers reading the story, they're like, all right, I know how this book ends. I've seen the end of this chapter. And then David turns to him and says this, do not fear. Oh, no, no, you're not going to die today. Quite the opposite. I'm going to show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. He was one of my best friends. And he chose to align himself with what is right when the expectations for him to go with what was powerful. And even Saul, your grandfather, who hunted me for many years, I still loved him even though he didn't love me. And I cared about him even though he didn't care about me. And I refused to take the kingdom from him. But guess what? I'm now sitting in his castle and in his fortress. And you're going to eat bread at my table for the rest of your life. No more living in a shack in the alley on the other side of Jerusalem. You're going to be adopted in the family, the royal family. 
and I'm going to set up everything you've ever owned is going to be here. You're going to sit at my table continually. And, and, and Mephibosheth turns to him, tries to bow down in whatever way he could with his lame legs. He bows down before him and it says, what is your servant that you would look upon such a dead dog as me? Whoa! Now, it's about time I got royal blood. It's about time I get to sit at that table. It's not entitlement. It's an overwhelming sense that when I realize what I, what I don't deserve in this culture, I'm like, wow, you've got to be kidding. I came here thinking I was getting death, and you're telling me I'm about to be part of the royal family. And David says, oh, it gets better than that. Hey, Ziba. Ziba comes over. This man restored all the land owned by his grandpa, owned by his dad. But he, clearly he can't work the field. I want you to hire people and hire out. I want all of his fields restored to him, and I want them to work the land for him that he can fully enjoy all the benefits. For Meshibbethes shall eat bread at my table always. Now here's the question. This is a powerful story whether it's true or not. But I'm telling you, there is archaeological evidence, there's historic evidence, there's manuscript evidence to show that this is something that really happened. David sets up a new type of kingdom, unlike any kingdom before or after that no one's ever seen before. So there'll be a new reign and a new philosophy and a new ethic of mercy. And this is why, let me define mercy for you. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. You ever been with an employee or been with a kid and they couldn't experience your mercy because they're still making excuses that they don't deserve it? I didn't really do that. No, that's not really true. It wasn't really that bad. They go, just say it was that bad because we know it was that bad. Once you acknowledge what it is, I deserve this punishment, then you might be able to experience my mercy not getting what you deserve. But until you know what you do deserve, you're not going to be wowed by my mercy. You're going to be like, well, I didn't really like it anyway. Mephibosheth's story is a story of how we approach God and a new type of king. We say, God, if all my secrets came out, I know what I don't deserve. And God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you far more. I want to adopt you in my family. I want to restore everything you own. I want to do something that's totally countercultural to everything you've ever heard of before. So that's the account of Mephibosheth. And our application for us today is this. How do you think Mephibosheth walked out of that room or, or didn't walk out of the room, how do you think he strolled through town that day? What thoughts were in his mind? What emotions was he feeling as he went through his day, thinking he was coming to his death sentence and now he just had the biggest windfall of anyone he's ever heard of? Think about that because I want you to develop the Mephibosheth mindset, the kind of mindset that says, because I don't feel entitled to anything, I'm grateful for everything. And how would you treat everyone if you'd been given everything? If somebody owed Mephibosheth something, a couple bucks, and he's just been restored millions of dollars, how forgiving would Mephibosheth be that day? <laughs> Pretty forgiving. How patient would he be with others who deserve something for what they did to him in light of what he didn't get, what he was deserved in that culture? Because he received the compassion of the king, the generosity of the king, the patience of the king, he was able to do three things as part of this Mephibosheth mindset. Number one, do unto others 
as God has done unto you. Now, you may not be a Christian. You may not believe in the message of Jesus because you've seen Christians just, you know, tear at each other and do all kinds of terrible things. I get it, and I'm one of them, as much as I don't want to be. But when you understand the main message of the Bible is that you come to God saying, God, if I got what I deserved, I'm in trouble. And God says, now that you've acknowledged that, know what you don't deserve, it leads to what you don't. I want to adopt you in my family. I want to forgive you. I want to give you mercy. And I want to offer you incredible patience and generosity and kindness. And when that begins to click in your heart, you say, well, I want to do unto others what God's done to me. My spouse may not deserve my, my patience today because they're being crabby, but I didn't deserve God's patience. And since God was patient with me when I was crabby, I'll be patient with somebody who's crabby. I've run out of compassion for a son or daughter, but God had so much compassion for me when I didn't deserve it. I'm going to do unto others what God's done unto me. That's why this is the engine for everything you ever needed. It's a windfall from God to you, from the king to you, that mobilizes you to live a whole different life. You see everything through the Mephibosheth mindset. I have two sons, Quinn and Javen. When Javen was born, I tried to talk my wife into naming him Mephibosheth Methuselah Hovind. I just thought it would be fun in school to fill out all the, the Scantron bubble sheets. You remember that? It's Chad was real easy. Mephibosheth. She said no. So when we adopted Quinn 12 years ago, almost 13 years ago, I tried again. Let's name him Mephibosheth. No, that did not make it. But when Javen was about 10, he and Sierra were both doing some TV shows and some movies and commercial type things. And he got selected for this one TV commercial that was pretty amazing. And so we shot some of it over here in Madeira. But apparently there's a, a TV show in uh, Japan that takes viral YouTube videos and kind of tells you the rest of the story. So there was a viral video from up here in Mason. I got to meet the kid it was based on at an event one time. So this kid really wanted a Wii. And there was no way he could get a Wii. It was that year that Wiis were popular and they are all sold out. And he just knew he had to set his expectations low. There's no way I'm going to get a Wii. They're all sold out. And in this video, the parent's like, all right, time to open your last gift. You know, the camera going and all that. And as he opens the gift, he kind of already set up his, his he's not going to get it, no way to have it. He opens up this gift. <gasps> he sees it's a Wii. He's like 10 years old at the time. Opens this thing up. It's a Wii. It's, I can't believe I got a Wii. And he, he throws up. <laughs> all over. He's genuine excitement. Jennifer overwhelmed. I'm talking about wow expectation. He throws up and the parents are like, oh, so sorry. And they, uh, it, was just, it went viral, this video, this kid that was so excited about his Wii, they threw up. So the, Javen got picked because he looked like this kid, and they told the whole backstory, you know, where mom and dad were when they buy it and when he asked for it and what happened with it and how he kind of lost his expectation for it and knew there was no way to get it. And then the, the TV show kind of ended with showing the viral video, which is how this TV show worked. And I remember thinking, that's what I want, not the throw up part. I want to be so overwhelmed that I don't deserve it and may, I'm not entitled to it, but man, God, I can't believe you love me that much. And God, I can't believe that you allowed me to be born in America in, in this time, in this place. I can't believe I got breath in my lungs. I can't believe I have, I, have, I have a house. I can't believe that I have a car. God, I'm just, whoa, you're so good to me. Let alone the fact that he says, and that's nothing compared to what I really got for you. This side of eternity and the other side of death, you're going to sit at a banquet table. I got a, a banquet table in heaven that we're going to spend eternity together. 
and you're adopted into my family. And the only thing you need to be adopted into my family to get my mercy is to recognize you don't deserve it. When you don't deserve it, it leads to getting it. The Mephibosheth mindset, doing unto others as God has done unto you. You might say, well, I don't believe God's done that unto me. But do you see how if you did believe it, it would transform or become an engine for how you live? Number two, you would begin to walk through life like you've won the lottery. Can you imagine Mephibosheth for the next week, month, or years? And he has won life's lottery. And that spirit of how could you do this to a dead sloth like me, a dead dog like me, that humility that King Saul began with, by the way, oh my goodness, how would you pick me to be king? But he goes from the humility of a dead dog like me to the expectation of you better give me your allegiance because I'm in control. Somehow he won the lottery and turned into a tyrant. Mephibosheth keeps that humility, those expectations of gratitude that keeps him in that position of, whoa. I got a friend of mine, we had a, a meeting years ago. Let's meet with a guy, very accomplished, resume kind of to die for that most of us would want or envy and look at. Accomplished amazing things, done amazing things. And I said, what does it feel like just to kind of be at this stage of your life and your career to accomplish so many things at such a young age? And he turned to me, he says, I just pray this to God almost every day. God, how am I so grateful that you would use a dead dog like me? I knew exactly the passage of the Bible he's talking about. And it wasn't like a poor me. It wasn't like I'm an Eeyore, heart of myself. It was I'm accomplished. I've done amazing things. Uh, God's used me to do uh, some pretty impactful things in big ways. But the humility still existed there. I won eternity's lottery, and I'm humble because of it. I went to my first Daytona 500 race a couple weeks ago. I'm not really a NASCAR fan, didn't know much about it, but I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go? So our parents went, and Beth and I went, so we're sitting there watching the, the cars spin around, just the raw power of this thing. It was just amazing. And as they're scurrying around, you know, of course, I guess why you go to NASCAR is to wait for an accident, and we had four of them, and, and it was amazing. This one car tumbles, boom, boom, hits its ceiling, bounced back on all fours, and still driving. I mean, it didn't race anymore, but I'm like, holy cow. We had one accident right in front of us. Now, we're sitting there. I have no idea who to vote, vote for, root for, because I've never been to a NASCAR before. And so I hear other people around me, hey, we're going for Chase, and we're going for this person. Well, before the NASCAR, you kind of walk around the little booze. So Beth and I are walking around the little booze, and somebody gave us a T-shirt. 23. Who's 23? Bubba. That's who we're voting for. So we're in there like we're the greatest Bubba fans you've ever heard. Bubba Wallace! Let's go, Bubba Wallace! And sure enough, he's like 40th, 39th, 29th, accident here, accident there. Things flip over. We're getting closer to the last 100 laps. Like, Bubba's in fifth. Bubba's in second. Yeah, Bubba! Yeah, you Chase fans don't know what you're talking about. We're suddenly so proud of ourselves because we're Bubba fans. He's literally in you know, first place for the last five or six laps, and then in second place, we're cheering him on. And all of a sudden, at the end, we're like, yes, we're cheering him on. My mom didn't know who the drivers were. She's cheering for the M&M car. She's got a little bag of M&M's. M&M car. She's cheering to M&M's. So she's got the M&M's. We're going for Bubba. And sure enough, Bubba comes in and misses the win by two or three feet at the end. And I thought to myself, I become a raging fan for Bubba Wallace. 
because I got a lousy t-shirt. That's only all I knew about it. Now, I since have found out I'm from Chicago. Michael Jordan owns uh, Bubba Wallace's car. I found he's the only African-American uh, driver. There's lots of great reasons I could have been a huge fan for Bubba Wallace. And the fact that he's a great driver. But what really motivated me to become a fan is I got a free t-shirt. And God says the gift of eternity isn't something you earn. It's a free gift. And when you realize you have won eternity's lottery, you don't just obey God or respect God. You become a raging fan of God because you want, I know what I do deserve, and I got the opposite. The Mephibosheth mindset, doing unto others as God has done unto you, walking through life like you have won not just this life's lottery, but eternity's lottery. But it comes down to this main thing. If you want to have that Mephibosheth mindset, you approach God based on his conduct, uh, his character rather, not your conduct. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, every other philosophy. Every other philosophy says you approach God based on your conduct. Look what I've done good. Look at the stuff I've kind of you know, made up for bad. And the good stuff's so good and the bad stuff's not quite so bad. And so God, you owe me based on what I've done right and, and the few things I've done wrong. And God says, if you come to me based on what you deserve or think you don't deserve, you're going to get a fair trial, and it's not going to work out real well. But instead, you come to me and say, God, I did some good things, but they're not as good as they could have been. I've done some bad things that really aren't that great. And I don't deserve perfection in heaven. But I'm going to appeal to you based on your character, your mercy, your generosity not based on my conduct. See, when you do that, when that begins the way in which you approach God, you're going to find that you're going to get the deal of a lifetime, the windfall of a lifetime. Because God is so generous and so kind and so forgiving that when you approach him saying, hey, listen, I know what I don't deserve, it leads to what you never could have imagined. And as you wander through life, imagine... Poor Mephibosheth, wandering all those years, threat of his life, hiding out, wondering in a world of expectations that killed anyone and everyone, never would he imagine a new type of king would come to power that would change everything. Maybe you're wandering through life right now and you're at the top of your game. You have won life's lottery, things going well, and, but it hasn't fully satisfied. And you're like, is there something more? Yeah, there's an eternity lottery that can be added to your portfolio, so to speak. Or maybe you're going through a time, you're wondering, where is God and what's happening? You're going through a valley and you're wondering, like, man, this is difficult and this is hard. And you're traveling wondering if there is a God and if he really exists and if he really wants to help people like you. I want to tell you the true story of a guy named Bob Irwin. Bob, at age 24, had developed a pharmaceutical company that got bought out by LabCorp. So if you've been to LabCorp, got some medical tests done, this was the company he started. Very, very wealthy, very, very powerful. However, didn't really think much about God or his soul. He had plenty of things to satisfy him and not think about that stuff. Except that he lost his sight at a very young age. And as he was feeling suddenly lost, because all his money and all of his power couldn't buy his eyesight back, it says losing his eyesight forced him to look inward. What really matters? What happens when you die? Where's real meaning come from? Where do you invest your time? He found himself becoming more of an outdoorsman. 
He went to a, a blind school where he kind of learned how to cope with his new lack of, of sight. And he got a seeing eye dog, a German shepherd he named Orient. In fact, uh, he decided he was going to be the first person, first blind person, to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. He started in Georgia, just he and his dog. And they began to hike, and they would eventually make it all the way up to Maine, where you see a picture of he and his German shepherd, Orient. People called them the Orient Express. And along the way, people would see a man with a cane who was blind by himself in the Appalachian Trail, traveling, uh, weary from all the wear and tear, and they'd come up to him and say, hey, tell me your story. And he'd say, you know what? When I lost my sight, it forced me to look into my own soul in a way I never had before. And one of the first decisions I made was to reach out to God. I had money, I had power, but it was this circumstance that forced me to look in. And I found the God of the Bible is a God who forgives and leads. And I know this for sure, I would not have found what really matters if I had not lost my sight. There's a verse from the Bible that he now lives by. Actually, he just passed away a few years ago. But the word is, I walk by faith, not by sight. And everyone he encountered on that path, on those years of traveling the Appalachian Trail, he would talk about finding the real riches and what really mattered. And he had this Mephibosheth mindset of caring for the people. 